trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i am your humble host coach jason coop and this episode of the podcast is coming in hot with some new findings on hot water immersion for heat acclimation those of you training for the Badwater 135, the Western States 100, or even Wasatch surely recognize the need for heat acclimation training in order to improve performance in those events. However, there still remains a chasm of practice among coaches and athletes as to what types of interventions to use, whether that be exercising in the heat, the use of a sauna, or the use of a hot water immersion bath, and even how long to use those interventions for. In addition to this, it has long been contentious amongst coaches and athletes about how stressful these types of interventions are. And I have made my opinion very clear on this aspect that many athletes and coaches continually miss the mark when they choose to run around the mountains in their puffy jackets or use a sauna for months on end. Fortunately for athletes, more and more research continues to point out that sensible heat acclimation protocols that last days, not weeks, and interfere little or not at all with the training process continue to come out. And this podcast is a further extension of that theme. So enter Sam Oliver and Robbie McIntyre, whose recent paper, which is titled A Comparison of Medium-Term Heat Acclimation by Post-Exercise Hot Water Immersion or Exercise in the Heat, Adaptation, Overreaching, and Thyroid Hormones. And I know that's a mouthful, but this research paper pits hot water immersion against exercising the heat in a control group and compare those modes effectiveness and if they have a difference in contributing to any of the ill ill effects of overtraining syndrome. I love how the research like this can produce simple, logical extensions into everyday practice and preparation for athletes so that they can perform at their best. So with that as a bit of a backdrop, I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Sam Oliver and Robbie McIntyre. I'm always really curious to talk about a topic such as this because it's so incredibly prevalent in ultra marathon running, which is going to be our primary audience that's listening to this. Not only do we have like a number of, uh, a number of races that are hot weather races where the environment becomes one of, if not the limiting factor, but in, in addition to this, and I make fun of the ultra crowd about this all the time, there's just this legacy of ultra runners doing all of these contrived and crazy uh, methods and adjunctive uh, uh, types of training and interventions to try to overcome the heat and whether that's exercising in a sauna or layering up with, you know, 10 different layers or doing a combination of all of those and even more, it just kind of gets more bizarre. Uh, so those two things combine the fact that the races themselves or there are a lot of races themselves that have hot weather types of environments where it becomes a critical issue, but also this kind of legacy of all this crazy type of training. It makes the research that we're going to talk about today incredibly prevalent. But before before we get into it, just so the audience can kind of learn uh, learn voices to names and to learn a little bit more about you, let's take some time and just introduce you guys uh, and and just generally what you do and what your research focuses on. And I guess since my green box is around Sam, Sam, you can uh, kick us off here. 
Uh, thanks, Jason. So my name is Sam Oliver. I'm a, a reader, I guess you say associate professor on, on that side of the pond um, in sport and exercise science here at Bangor University in, in Wales in the UK. Um, uh, my, my work, my research and teaching really centers around um, exercise and environmental physiology. Um, and and a, a big part of this has been developing strategies to really improve people's um, health as well as their performance operates that have to operate in these sort of extreme environments. So athletes, for sure, are a big focus, but also some other active populations like soldiers, um, other um, allied health professionals that are working in like mountainous environments, for example. So, yeah, and, and looking forward, I'm, you know, looking into the future, I'm really keen to try and use some of the things we've learned um, in these populations to try and help better prepare the general population for some more extreme weather that's likely coming our way. So the heat waves and, and cold snaps that uh, are often in the news. So, yeah. That's that's where we're at. And here in the U.S., we're trust trust me, we are completely accustomed to using our military personnel for these types of uh, for these for this type of research. They're great guinea pigs and very willing willing guinea pigs to put them in extreme types of uh, environments. And just where I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, there's actually a kind of a plethora of that because we have the mountains and we have the cold and we also have the military bases here. So a lot of that research tends to it tends to emanate just really proximal to to where I'm living. So I'm sure you can. You can appreciate that. Um, uh, so let's continue on. Robbie, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, my name is Robbie McIntyre. Uh, background in exercise physiology. And uh, last year, I've completed my PhD, which specialized in heat acclimation. So comparing different strategies to prepare for exercise in hot environments. And that was partly... Funded by Bangor University and the Ministry of Defence. Uh, I'm now a lecturer at uh, St Mary's University in Twickenham, London, um, where I lecture on exercise physiology. So the paper that we're going to discuss and that will eventually spider out into con some conversation because it's always important to discuss the like literature. The link to this will be in the show notes for the uh, for the listeners. But the title of it is is a comparison of medium term heat acclimation by post exercise hot water immersion or exercise in the heat adaptations. And the I, I think the critical piece of this that is unique in in this space is overreaching in thyroid hormones. And I want to center a little bit of the conversation around that, because as practitioners in the space, one of the things that we are very consciously aware of is that whenever we put an athlete through a heat acclimation protocol, there is this push and pull and give and take between the training load and the heat acclimation additional load that is put on that athlete. And we're always searching for this Goldilocks type of scenario to where we can maintain the training load as much as possible because we realize that that's incredibly important. But we also want to add on some type of intervention that is going to have an effect, either an altitude type of effect or in this case, a, 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 an effect in, in hot weather environments. And uh, I'm not I'm not aware of a lot of research that can kind of like quantify like how stressful the heat acclimation part of it is we recognize that it's stressful we were either in a passive environment or an active environment and one of the unique traits of your research in particular was trying to kind of aim at like how it might be additionally stressful when you're just adding these types of interventions on and if 
and is there a way to actually do it more uh, more effectively? So either one of you can kind of take it from here. I want to first just generally describe the study setup in terms of who you were looking at and the intervention that you that you were putting them through and what specifically you were looking at with uh, uh, with the subjects. Yeah, I'll go for this. Um, so we recruited recreationally active males, and that was to sort of um, uh, be equivalent to like a military personnel, like military recruits who are often most at risk of exertional heat illness and these sort of uh, performance decrements because they haven't maybe been exposed to that sort of heat before. Um, so that was our... Uh, study population and what we were doing was comparing uh, conventional exercise heat acclimation intervention with um, a more novel post-exercise hot water immersion approach. Um, we've previously seen adaptations from post-exercise hot water immersion over the short term, so looking at three to six days, um, but what we hadn't uh, investigated yet was extending that and seeing whether extending the six-day post-exercise hot water immersion protocol to 12 days would lead to greater adaptations, which is um, often reported to be the case with uh, conventional exercise heat acclimation interventions. So we wanted to ex uh, extend the protocol to 12 days and assess um, heat acclimation adaptations and compare those between post-exercise hot water immersion and exercise heat acclimation and as you've said we wanted to also look into maybe some of the if we could elucidate some of the mechanisms behind the adaptations from heat acclimation so we set about uh, trying to measure um, thyroid hormones and we also were quite interested in looking at the overreaching element to it as well and comparing that between those two interventions and for the audience, just as a little bit of a clarification, I think we need to be a little bit more specific on what the exercise heat acclimation or the traditional way, as you were calling it, of heat acclimation, what that actually means. Like, what were the athletes actually doing for that? Are they exercising in the heat? Are they overdressing? Like, how did that actually look in the in this uh, paper? Yeah, so uh, we wanted to sort of replicate uh normal guidelines which is just to exercise in the heat um, so normally what athletes would do is to travel out to a hot country um, and complete like a training camp there for a week two weeks and then travel back home um, or they could also travel um, exercise in an environmental chamber which is like a hot box sort of idea um, where you can control the environmental conditions so increase the temperature of the room and exercise there. Um, so what we did was uh, the participants would exercise at uh, a sub-maximum intensity for up to 60 minutes in the first six occasions, 75 minutes in the next six occasions, in 33 degrees heat, 40% relative humidity. That's hot. Yeah, a lot of sweat. It's all a lot of sweat during the protocol. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sam, anything you want to add to that? No, not really. I think Robbie's just done a really good job there describing the, uh, the protocol. I think the key, the key message here is we're really trying to compare that historically what people have um, 
thought of as being the kind of optimal kind of prolonged 12 days, two weeks of um, exercise heat acclimation, whether that be in a chamber or whether that be in a natural environment. So this new form of this maybe more practical of exercising in a cool environment, but then taking that um, hot, hot bath afterwards um, to, to try and act as a, a heat a, a additional or different heat acclimation strategy. So that's the real was there was there any reason that you guys were using hot water immersion as opposed to a dry sauna? So uh, it comes from uh, background studies. So Mike Zarali and uh, Neil Walsh, Jessica Me, uh, d- released a few studies a few years ago from 2016, 2018, 2019, looking at post-exercise hot water immersion. So we knew from those studies that it was effective in recreationally active and endurance trained individuals. So, and the results looked really promising. Um, so we thought that was uh, a good option to go with. Yeah, I'd, I'd add on to that one there, Jason. That, um, it's a really, it is from that practical sense, I guess, a sauna, you, you, you need that sauna environment. Not many people are lucky enough to probably have a sauna at home, but most people have a bath or something that they could have, a tub or something that they could fill with hot water and sort of recreate this in their own environment. So um, from a practical perspective, it probably is more practical than like a sauna type strategy, certainly much more um, practical than having a thermal or environmental chamber for you to, to do this. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. And I've seen, you know, we've used both of those methodologies in practice. And I would say the balance of it always comes out on, uh, on Sam, just what you were mentioning, what's the most convenient for the athlete, right? Because when you try to tease out the differences from a, from a physiological point of view or from an outcome point of view between those two methodologies, you kind of get into this hair splitting type of competition and you've got to go back to, is it easier just for the athlete to fill up their tub with hot water, boiling water, some sort of combination of those two, or drive to the gym, get in a dry sauna, you know, go from their car to the gym, get in the sauna, come out and then kind of go on with their day. That's a whole, you know, hour and a half, right. Of additional time that they've, that's kind of evaporated. So I think your point to, from, from a convenience perspective is actually, uh, is actually really well taken. I want to get into some of the overtraining component of this uh, of this particular paper that you guys wanted to study because I think this is one of the things that makes this relatively unique in this whole heat acclimation space and also brings us back to the question of from a practical point of view what intervention is going to be best what type of intervention is going to be best depending upon the situation of the athlete so what were you measuring from that perspective and why did you choose to measure those markers so we looked at a number of different measures uh including sleep uh cognitive function and um uh what else did we measure sam well you you the the performance test itself right so the exercise test itself is a pretty much considered one of the sort of sure. uh, methods to be able to try to tell whether someone's are not performing as well. Um, blood lactate is uh, sometimes kicked around as potentially as a marker in relation to the exercise capacity. That was also assessed as well. Um, and uh, mood, of course, mm-hmm. which is probably the um, probably the most simplest, right. most practical way. And I'm guessing, Jason, as a, as a coach and yeah, I'm guessing you probably get most from speaking to your athletes and, and finding out how they're feeling. And probably that's the biggest indication if you've 
um, you ramped up their training a bit too quick or it's been going on for too long at a high level. And, and then really, in my, my understanding of the overtraining literature, not uh, not specifically of heat acclimation, is that mood is probably one of the most sensitive markers. So so um, Robbie did a good job in assessing that in, in the participants in this study as well. And that's the one that I wanted to pick on a little bit. I'm so cl- I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Sam, because you 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 you've already extrapolated what I was going to mention. Is is from a pragmatic uh, point of view, whenever I've put athletes through these protocols, and you can talk to any coach out there, they're just run down. I mean, their 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 mood is literally depressed. Even you you can hear it in the tone of their voice when you get them on the phone or you talk to them after a workout, and it's because of the stress of the heat intervention, whether you're using, whether they're exercising in the heat or you're using a sauna or hot water immersion, which is what you guys were using in this particular study. And so I'm so glad that you guys tried to encapsulate that as well, because it's a sentiment that we've had in the coaching world for a long period of time, but we've had a tough time, like scientifically explaining it or scientifically kind of like moving through, is this actually, is this actually something or are we kind of biasing it with our own you know, through our, through our own lens and our, through our own experience. So let's start to move through, through the results. And I, I kind of, you guys can direct on what you think were the most important things from, and, and the most powerful things from the actual research itself. And then we can kind of discuss what those mean for the athletes. So Robbie, I think you'll probably take the lead on, on, on this piece of it. What within the results of the actual study did you kind of find like the most most important that athletes should actually start to pay attention to? So for heat acclimation, key adaptation would be a reduction in end exercise core temperature. So that's core temperature. We used rectal core temperature, which is a gold standard. Um, but yeah, core temperature at the end of submaximal exercise in the heat. Um and that adaptation really lends itself to performing in the heat because uh, that tends to be the limiting factor. Um, when you reach a core temperature of yeah 40 degrees, then you're starting to go into heat stroke and your performance, uh, heat exhaustion, that sort of thing. So um, that's like a key adaptation to uh, heat acclimation. And it's... Yeah, one of our key results from this study, a reduction in index size core temperature and uh, resting core temperature as well. Um, so we saw quite large reductions um, following six and 12 days of post-exercise hot water immersion um, and index size core temperature and resting core temperature. And it was a significantly, uh, a significantly greater reduction in... Uh, both of those from uh, just exercising in a temperate environment and then exercising in the heat as well. Um, yeah, so that would be our main one, I think. Sam, do you want to tack on to that? Yeah, only to maybe point something out, which is maybe um, in comparison with some of the previous studies that, as Robbie rightly pointed out, were led by Professor Neil Walsh and Mike Zuralu, the early papers in this sequence of studies, um, one of the additional things we did in this study is we started to look at not just core temperature, but also the whole body's temperature using a, a metrical mean body temperature, which is mathematically derived from the peripheral skin temperature and the core temperature combined. And 
Um, in this paper, we actually showed that that was also um, reduced the whole mean body temperature of the individual more after post-exercise hot water immersion in comparison with the um, conventional heat acclimation um, strategy. And the reason why I picked that up, that might you might sort of say, well, Sam, you, so it sounds like you're splitting hairs, core yeah, temperature. Yeah, yeah. Temperature, yeah. So I'll, I'll pick that up a little bit more. As the way I, I like to think about it is that if we just focus on core temperature, we might be missing the, the total benefit of interventions, um, whether that be heat acclimation or some other form of preparatory strategy to uh, for people that are going to go and exercise in heat. So if we take another one, say like um, ice slushy is one that some people have knocked around. So you take your ice slushy, it drops your core temperature. But I'm not aware of whether, you know, whether that's really going to have any effect on your periphery, whether that's actually going to reduce the whole body's temperature. And I think one of the really additional steps in this study is we've shown that post-exercise hot water immersion leads to a reduction in the whole body temperature, which if you think about it, when you start to exercise, if the whole body is cooler, you've got a great, you've created yourself a greater healing, heat, uh, greater ceiling, sorry, before you heat up to those higher core temperatures. And it, and there's some, although it's somewhat debated, some people actually argue that it's not really core temperature alone, which is the limiting factor for exercise performance in the heat. It's actually a combination and maybe just as much, it's just as important to think about skin temperature and how hot our periphery is um, when we think about what causes us to stop. Um, exercising so yeah I, I, like i said i think that that additional bit of information it, it might be missed when people read the paper because they don't quite get the subtlety between assessing the core versus the whole body temperature but i think that that additional bit of information is really um suggests to me even greater benefits really of post-exercise hot water immersion than perhaps we've previously appreciated um, in the in the earlier work yeah, I think that that's super important because I remember when everybody jumped on the ice slushy bandwagon for it seemed like a six or 18 month period of time when that initial research came out. And then we all took a big step back and said, wait, wait a minute, maybe this doesn't have as big of an effect as we thought it did. And then maybe in certain conditions, you're actually being counterproductive to what you're trying to do because the cold that you're ingesting is so highly localized in one area of the body. And not to say that you can't combine an ice slushy with other types of cooling uh, interventions, but it, it, a lot of people in my, in my opinion, my professional coaching opinion got blinded to utilizing one as kind of the sole sword in that fight that they that they were having uh, uh against the heat and not realizing that there are other kind of other things at play so you're the the salient point though with this with this particular study is what you're and what what you're trying to to communicate that i'll reemphasize is maybe with the with any type of heat intervention we should appreciate both the reduction in core temperature as well as the reduction in total body temperature and perhaps hot water immersion can affect both of those, which is a larger benefit than just the core temperature reduction. 
Um, I'm, I'm going to take a moment and let you guys regroup here and direct the listeners to a previous podcast that I did with the U.S. Olympic Training Center's uh, Lindsey Golich, who's been a colleague of mine for a long period of time and has done these core temperature uh, studies on any number of different athletes. We had a great conversation about that and the specific protocol that she uses there at the training center to test core temperature increases uh, with all of these types of athletes. Y'all go and check that. Uh, y'all go and check that podcast podcast out if you want more information on how we how they actually test this uh, in the lab and some of the protocols that are actually used, which is slightly different than you guys' protocol, but it's going to hit the general gists. So we'll move back to Robbie here. We've got this core temperature change, right? Which is to be not not to not to uh, belittle the research paper, but it's kind of a no duh, right? That's what you expect. There's a lot of literature to suggest that any any of these types of heat interventions are going to have that type of effect. Let's roll it down a little bit more. What else did you find that was that was interesting that might be important to athletes? We saw also saw a reduction, and it's maybe another obvious one, but also saw a reduction in uh, perceptual um, or an improvement in thermal comfort in the heat after post-exercise hot water immersion. Um, so that's probably also, so that's obviously with ultramarathon stuff, and the mental game is a big part of it, especially as distances uh, increase, it becomes more and more psychological, right? Um, so a reduction or an improvement in perceptual comfort is... Uh, yeah, is what we observe following post-exercise hot water immersion. Um, and alongside that, uh, an improvement in rating of perceived exertions. So uh, the participants found it easier to work in the heat after post-exercise hot water immersion compared to just training in a temperate environment. Sam, do you want to tack on to that one at all? Well, I think the the, the perception of effort is key, right? It, it, the thing that makes us stop exercising is when it cuts too tough that we decide to quit. Yeah. And, uh, one of my big, um, one of my former uh, mentors, uh, Professor Samuela Marcora, does all the work on mental fatigue and endurance performance. Um, you know, he he made that pretty clear. And when I was uh, when I was back in the student, and I still hold on to that. that you know, RPE is a really simple measure, just like we're talking about mood scales and things, but. It's really um, it gives us some really good insights. So I think again, it could be really overlooked in this particular paper. It's just RPE, but it's practically and for athletes and coaches, it that data is really important. That we're showing there that we're reducing people's perception of their 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 exercising effort, and and that means that they're going to be able to exercise for longer um, at, the, at the same intensity, and and clearly that's super important for for any um, endurance athlete. Uh, so yeah. I, Simple, but a really meaningful uh, finding. Samuel's uh, legacy has extended throughout the throughout this podcast, probably in about a dozen different episodes. So I'm, I'm sure you didn't know that beforehand. But if you go back through the guest list, they're just they're just kind of everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm I, I'm kind of on the same page as is we can measure a lot of these end physiological effects from heat interventions. But what might be the most important and probably performance powerful of all of them is just, I feel cooler. The heat doesn't affect, or I feel that the heat doesn't affect me. Now, whether that's, who, who knows what that's due to, right? Some sort of physiological effect that that is not kind of translating uh, or is not as impactful kind of up the, uh, up the neural chain. 
or just the fact that they have done it and they get a psychological boost from knowing that they've gone through that protocol and that they've done the work or a combination of all those, I kind of don't care. If you feel like you're going to perform better in the heat because you've gone through the intervention, great. I'm going to take that win, you know, six ways from Sunday and we're going to just, we're just going to absolutely, absolutely run with it. Um, so that's super important as well. And we, we hear that feedback from our athletes is they just feel more prepared. And the, the, the important word that I'm trying to emphasize there is feel they feel more prepared after going through these types of interventions because you can't really placebo control it, right? You're either in the sauna or you're not. You're in the hot water immersion or you're not. It's kind of, it's a binary thing, right? You can't, you can't fake it. You can't fake that type of work. You're either going to do it or you're not. Um, so I want to move on to some of the like overtraining parameters that you guys measured because I, I thought that this was interesting and it's certainly a little bit more nuanced. But as I mentioned in the very beginning of this podcast, it's something from a, from a coaching perspective and also from the athlete's perspective that we try to put a, a big highlight on because athletes don't want to stop training. They just want to <laughs> add on whatever intervention it is, right? Whether it's, you know, a, a heat acclimation intervention or an altitude intervention or even a strength training intervention, they always want to add and not add and subtract something else. And we've tried to find this Goldilocks scenario across the whole host of training interventions that we have in, in, in our toolkit, uh, heat acclimation kind of being one of them. And you guys are trying to get a little bit at this answer in terms of how impactful this, this could be. What did you find out in this, in, in, in this area? Cause it is something that's subject to debate and something that's a lot more, that's, it's certainly a little bit less clear than some of the other, uh, end physiological goals that you can measure. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a difficult one. It's, it's often overreaching is often overlooked in heat acclimation race, uh, literature. You don't, you don't often see, um, overreaching markers measured. Um, there are a couple of studies that have looked at overreaching after like an intensified heat acclimation training program and, shown that after a period of recovery, there is an additional performance improvement. Uh, so that sort of tells you that there is a bit of a decrement after exercise heat acclimation. Um, but yeah, to our knowledge, I think this is the first uh, study that's looked at overreaching markers after post-exercise hot water immersion. Yeah, I think um, a strength of studies we used the a lot of different measures to try and work out whether participants were overreached. At the moment, I'm not aware of a singular overreaching measure um, in existence because there's a lot of ambiguity about uh, when does a uh, when does a, an individual become overreached and how, how to measure that. So we used a lot of different measures to track a lot of different aspects, as I've said, including uh, mood. Cognitive performance, uh, endurance performance, sleep, and also looking at end exercise, heart rate, and uh, blood lactate. Um, and yeah, after 12 days of uh, post-exercise hot water immersion, 12 days of exercise heat acclimation, and 12 days of exercise in temperate environment, we found that there weren't actually any differences between those interventions in terms of overreaching markers. So that sort of shows you that um, even though that these participants had done 12 days of this, uh, heat acclimation, that 
uh, they weren't showing much sign of uh, overreaching. So, it, I mean, kind of what I take from that is, is that either one of the interventions are tolerable. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think it's really important to, to point out to this is you're using a, you're using a group to where the extra, they're not trying to exercise at their absolute maximum, right? Their training protocol is not certainly set up to their maximum, like their maximum capacity. And whenever that's the case, you can layer on additional training, some sort of additional intervention, or in many cases, both, and it kind of becomes a nothing burger. And so I'm always quite cautious to interpret some of these to a high performing athletic audience because this, the important difference in my, in my estimation, and you guys can bat this around a little bit is the difference in how hard they are actually training compared to the maximum amount of training load that they can actually tolerate during a training cycle. And with high performance athletes, they're so close to that ceiling that anything that you kind of layer on top of that, whether it's an additional hour per week of training in whatever mode or some sort of intervention, then that's when it actually becomes important because they're so close to that ceiling. A lot of times when we're looking at other population groups and even though they're doing the same type of training, some of those just things don't show up because they can tolerate the increase in stress because they're so far below the maximum amount of stress that they can, that they can actually tolerate. And so your point to where other studies have pointed this out, that there might be some sort of contribution of a heat acclimation protocol to, uh, to any sort of overtraining or overreaching markers, however you wanted to define it. And yours didn't show that it quite as, quite as powerful. I think that a lot of the difference lies in who you studying and how hard are they training during the actual study compared to what their maximum is. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, we were working with recreationally active individuals and, um, they were probably using this or they were using this protocol was their main training that week, for example. So they weren't going off and doing another session that evening. Um, so it, it was probably, uh, they were probably able to recover during that time um, adequately enough. Sam, do you want to jump in and tack on to any of that? Yeah, the only thing I would say is I, I agree as well, Jason. I think that... Um, uh, Understanding the uh, merit of post-exercise hot water immersion in really elite athletes, um, perhaps we, we don't have the hard evidence on that, but I think some of the um, earlier studies by uh, Zeralu, the first author, he did. We, you know, in that study, there is some data there in some people who are more endurance trained. The their VO2 max escapes me. Maybe Robbie can remember what, how how fit those individuals were in the in the endurance trained group, but they were they were pretty well trained and doing pretty reasonable number of hours. So there is evidence that the post-exercise hot water immersion strategy is effective in um, more than recreationally trained athletes, not maybe in world-class or super elite types. We have maybe haven't got that evidence yet, but um, certainly in, in fitter individuals. And I think the only other bit I would tack on is that remember that um, – the, the, the exercise intensities were individualized mm. um, in each of these studies. So they're, they're, they are a percentage of their VO2 max. So um, in application in really elite runners, I, I, I don't see why we wouldn't think about prescribing it in that way. I guess the only might, and, and then I would say that it might be effective and we would avoid the overtraining potentially in that group. I guess for you, Jason, it's about 
is that enough intensity? Are they happy with that? Or do they do that? Do the strategy and turn around and say, "I just didn't feel like I was running as hard today. I know it was in the heat, but I kind of wanted to run harder." Is that starting? Am I losing something else from my training? So I think having a look at that actual, it could be individualized, is what I'm saying, and I think it could be done in. It could be just as effective in more, um, you know, in, in higher. Uh, higher level runners cyclists whatever you name it but um we probably just need to to, to keep that in mind really yeah because the tendency of most athletes i guarantee you this with 20 years of experience doing this stuff is they just want to add and not substitute irrespective of the intervention or whatever type of training that you're introducing they want to add it to what they're currently doing right i mean it kind of goes back to the original concept of progressive overload right you always want to keep overloading the body overload 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 but with really good athletes or really experienced athletes you're kind of at the top of how much you can load them you're just in in a lot of senses training becomes a game of how you organize the the load throughout certain periods of the year in just a smarter fashion, maybe not in a more fashion, just in a smarter fashion. And this becomes one of those elements where you're adding a particular type of load. But in almost all cases, except for the cases where your athlete is kind of like, for whatever reason, maybe they're injury limited, right? So they're undershooting their maximum load. That would be a case where in, in your research actually is a really good, would be a very good proof point of this to where you can just add the load on top of it and there's probably no consequence. But it's when the athletes are at the maximum amount of their load, that's when it gets really tricky in adding any additional load, whether it's heat acclimation, altitude, strength training, whatever you want to, kind of whatever you want to add. So anyway, my encouragement to athletes is to just look at how close they are to their maximum and see how much they need to like take off the table. Almost nobody wants to do it. It's like it's it's, I could tell you from a practitioner's point of view, it's a total arm wrestling contest to get to people to reduce like three percent of their volume to add on heat. I mean, it is a really, really, really big fight. I think one of the things uh, just coming in there just to sort of come to me whilst we're talking about that is one of the other really neat early findings um, from from 2019, one of, again, Mike's earlier papers, is he showed that this heat acclimation um, effects from post-exercise hot water motion last for at least two weeks. Mm. So I I guess why why I'm, um, I'm putting that out there is just for people to think about when you time this and, and maybe there's an opportunity then to heat acclimate, increase that load, that stress, but not worry too much that you could actually then af- afford a couple of weeks of uh, recovering before a major event. And you're still going to retain that heat, those, those, the benefits of the heat acclimation two weeks after you finished um, your, your heat acclimation period. So that might just allow some flexibility, both for coaches and athletes to think about where do I put this in? I know it's going to potentially increase my load. I'm going to feel uh, pretty crappy, feel a bit more tired, but I've got a couple of weeks probably. Yeah. We actually don't know how long it lasts. That's a, a study for the future, but um, at least two weeks is, is our best guess at the moment. So, um, yeah, I think that that's worth bearing in mind for for athletes and coaches. Yeah, to that point, you see, you guys have probably seen this work out in practice, but many of the coaches and athletes in the space are starting to favor a two-phase protocol where they do 
like the heavier hitting or the more important phase, like six or eight weeks out from the event and then have a two week phase in between to where they're just training and then that's their highest training phase, right? So there's no heat acclimation. They're just training as hard as they can. That's the four to five or six weeks out from the event. And then they come back closer to the event and then just do a little top off. That's maybe 75% or 80% of the heat acclimation protocol that they do before and then leave a little space to, to, to the race. And then that two, what that two phase protocol, it's kind of doing two things. First off is you're getting the first major bump far enough away from the event that if you screw it up, which happens, you know, if you haven't done it before, it happens. You don't know how you're going to react to the heat, right? I mean, that's, there's a huge individual response. And those of you guys that are watching the YouTube version can see these huge nods from Robbie and Sammy. You guys recognize that in the research, right? There's a huge individual variation in terms of how hard and how impactful these kind of things are. So you do the first one far enough out from the event. So if you screw it up, you got a little bit of time to course correct, but also you're not doing it at the same time as you're doing the heaviest load of training. So you stop the heat acclimation, then you do your heaviest load of training, which in my opinion makes that more impactful because you give you a little bit of a bump from that. And then you come back not having lost much, if anything, to your point, Sam, uh, and you do a little bit of top off kind of coming, coming back into the event. So uh, I've just started to see that being favored a little bit more in practice versus what we originally used to do, which was just to stack it all at the very end and roll the dice and go to the casino and see if it actually ends up working in a little bit of a reckless fashion. But um, uh, so I'm glad that we're starting to see some of this research really elucidate that that kind of two-phase protocol and practice because i think the research and the practice that's one of those areas where they've kind of been running along the same tracks for a little bit and they're a little bit in agreement as the research starts to develop i'm gonna i'm gonna end this i'm gonna put you guys on the spot a little bit since we were talking about the pragmatic points of it and you guys can coin flip on who who takes this one first if you had a, an ultra marathon athlete and an endurance athlete approach you on, on just how to do this, I'm training for a hot weather race, hot weather marathon, Ironman triathlon, they're going to Kona or something like that. The bad water 135. Can you just give them a really high level overview of the protocol that you would use and be kind of specific. I'm going to, I know you guys don't like this because it's, it starts to get into the theoretical, but try to be specific as you can on the duration of the exposure, the intensity of the exposure, and the duration of the entire protocol. I think those are the things that the athletes are the most interested in. When should I get in hot water immersion or sauna? How long should I do it for on each session? And how, how many total consecutive days should I actually do it for? Are there any just generalized protocols that you can throw out to the audience based on your research and experience that, that the audience can draw from? Probably. Robbie yeah. goes. Robbie goes first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so looking at like uh, a single session, um, I think you'd, you'd start off with like an easy training session to get that initial rise in core temperature, and then you're trying to get into the bath as soon as possible after you finish that training session. Um, bath should be about forty degrees C, and you'll try and maintain that during the uh, duration of the immersion. Um, make sure you get up to your neck and uh, fully submerged. Um, and in terms of duration, um, starting off at around 20 minutes on your first 
first immersion, see how that goes, but obviously listen to your body. Um, if, if you feel really uncomfortable, then get out and you don't, don't want to put yourself at risk because as soon as you stand up, you know, if you've ever stood up quickly after, if you're, uh, if after being in a bath, you'll notice you get a bit of a head rush. So, uh, be, be aware of that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, start off nice and easy, 20 minutes. And then next session, maybe increase that by five minutes and then just see how that goes. Um, and then in terms of the protocol duration, I'd, I think you're pretty safe going with six days. We've got loads of evidence supporting six day immersion. Um, we have shown a nice, nice, uh, nice adaptations after three days of post exercise hot water immersion. But as you've said already, it is very individual. So three days might be good for someone, but to um, a higher chance of getting the adaptations that you want, I would go with uh, lower risk six days um, and see how that goes. Sam, anything to add to that? No, I think Robbie's got that covered off really well. I've really stressed the idea that, because a lot of these people are really motivated individuals, as you've already um, indicated, Jason, they kind of don't want to drop stuff and they may read, well, they may misread that these were 40-minute baths and they have to do it for 12 days in a row. And, <laughs> and, 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 and although some people do get to those sort of lengths of 40 minutes after a number of days, it's really important in that first couple of days um, to, to, to moderately exercise. You're not coming in absolutely cooking hot after a really high-intensity um, session and jumping into a you know, a bath, which they then go, yeah, I'm going to make it hotter still. If it was 40 degrees was good, you know, surely more is better. So it's really a case of following the the advice of moderate exercise, 40 degrees for the bath, monitor it, look for, you know, maybe up to 20 minutes on that first immersion, but see how you get on. If you're starting to feel like I can't stand this heat, you need to be thinking to, to, to come out even earlier than that and build it up over a few days. And if you can have somebody who's in and around supervising, you know, even if it's, uh, you know, your partner or, or whatever at home, I think that that's advisable as well, because probably the biggest risk here is as you get up, you, you, your, um, your legs are all dilated, your, your blood's in your lower legs, especially fit, trained um, endurance athletes have got that you know, that big vascular uh, system in their, in their lower limbs that you, you are potentially going to, re- you know, just getting up, we'd get changing gravity and, and pulling the blood in the legs and you're going to feel a bit dizzy and it's going to be slipping over in the bath that's going to be the be the downfall for people if they... So getting out of the bath, sitting down quietly for a few minutes afterwards because you're going to feel hot anyway, so, you know, just taking it easy. Since we have an ultra marathon audience, you have to indulge me with one final question or one final opinion I can get from you guys. And I'm, and I'm sinisterly hoping that this also helps, uh, my conversations and the battles that I kind of have to fight when I'm, when I'm explaining this particular aspect to athletes, you both mentioned that six days is probably enough and that 20 to 40 minutes is probably enough not 60 days and 60 minutes, which is what everybody wants to do. And the reason this this is important for specifically for an ultra marathon audience and endurance athletes in general is they always think more is better, right? More miles, more intervals, more days training, more weights in the gym, 
more sessions, more is better. There's this, like, we think that there's, there's, there's this linear dose response relationship with everything. So why six minutes, sorry, why six days and 20 to 40 minutes? Is there something deleterious or at least not as advantageous for going longer either in a session or longer for the entire protocol? Uh, so per session, I think um, you'll probably be limited by like around the time frame of 40 minutes anyway. Um, you're because it's the bath temperature, you want to clamp that about 40 degrees C. Your core temperature is going to continue to rise until you get out. So you can only take so much, right? Um, Don't challenge these people because you know what's going to happen, <laughs> man. <laughs> People are going to email me after this podcast and say, all right, I'm taking that on. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't do um, it. You're, I mean, but you're kind of taking it from a safety standpoint. Like people are going to tap out yeah, after, after that period of yeah. time. Yeah. Just uh, be, be on the careful side, I would say, um, especially in the first few baths. Like don't push yourself too much. Um, so uh, our protocol was 12 days after the, like, um, during the first six days, we had a maximum duration of 40 minutes. During the second six days, so days, uh, so immersion seven to 12, we increased that maximum duration to 50 minutes. I don't think any of our participants reached 50 minutes because their core temperature got so high um, or they felt sick and had to come out. Yeah, uh, I think you're, you're, you're going to be limited by your core temperature and how you feel. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't push much, much further than 40 minutes, 45 minutes, um, from, from a safety standpoint. And, and, and I just add to that, that remember, um, in this, we were monitoring their core temperature during the moderate exercise in temp, in a cool environment before they got in. So we knew exactly what core temperature people started the hot water bath. So that was my bit. I was trying to make the point previous comment, which is that, if people do a really high intensity, particularly high intensity short sessions where there isn't time for heat to dissipate away from the body, they're actually the sessions where people's core temperatures are going to rise the most. And actually you could be getting into the bath already with a yeah. very high core temperature. And then 40 minutes is definitely not going to be a good idea. And 60 minutes is probably going to be dangerous. So um, unless you know your core temperature and you know, your thermal physiology really well i think that um keeping with our, our sort of uh, recommendations of building it up slowly over a number of days doing moderate intensity exercise in a cool environment before you get into the hot bath remember and there's in the uk that's pretty easy it's pretty cold most most of the time but i know there's lots of places in the us over where you're based where parts of the year it's going to be really hot so people are going to be already really hot potentially before they get into the bath and i think the other bit i would just add on to this is that in the protocol after um uh four or so baths there was a rest day in this protocol so um in in the study that we're talking about so this isn't every single day without any form of rest so again it might be and this is speculative but if we tie this with some of the other papers that have shown some overreaching problems with heat acclimation. Um, it could be that if you do this sort of thing every single day for 12 days or more, 
and you're going up into sort of four weeks or whatever, you might start to increase your likelihood of getting some form of overreaching, et cetera. So um, maybe putting in a rest day isn't such a bad thing within even a six-day protocol where you just don't do one hot bath. So, um, And at least we haven't shown that that having a rest day is having a negative effect on the, the adaptations that are beneficially happening. So uh, I think that's important to, uh, to stress really. Yeah, it's a relative, the, the hard thing that endurance athletes have a, uh, the thing that they have a hard time wrapping their head around is that most of the adaptations that they are seeking are chronic adaptations. They take months to manifest. You go and you do a training session and maybe that may, most of those adaptations are going to show up eight weeks down the line, right? You have to train for months, months, and sometimes years to get better here. The adaptations are very quick, right? They're acute adaptations. And so the tendency for endurance athletes is to think, once again, more is better, longer duration is better. If I do this more consecutive days, it's better as well. But all the literature is indicating that there might not only be a negative effect with doing it too many consecutive days or for too long of a period of time, but also you can get like 90% of the maximum amount of benefit that you can study in a relatively short period of time. And that's kind of what I come down to is like, I'll leave the other 10% on the table because I don't want to spend another 30 days or however long that's going to take actually introducing this intervention and disrupting the training process and on and on and on. Leave the last 10% on the table. I can get the first 90% in whatever, six, eight, nine days, whatever, however you want to call it and just call it good. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. Um, yeah, I, I think your uh, the benefit you get off get from any heat acclimation protocol diminishes past a certain point. So you reach a plateau in your adaptation, and doesn't matter how many more uh, heat acclimation sessions you're going to do, you're not going to get much of a benefit, especially, and it's not going to be worth your time, not going to be worth the decrement in your training uh, intensity, and yeah, could potentially lead to overreaching as well as we've talked about. I think that that's a perfect way to, to, to leave it, get enough dose and then just call it good at that point. Um, thank you guys for this work. Uh, like I said, I've really appreciated it. I, I love it when I start to see like little nuances in the, the acclimation interventions and also how we study the effects of those interventions. And you guys did a brilliant job putting something together that's practical for a lot of people, not just athletes that are undertaking these things. Uh, we'll leave it with where can people find more about you and the work that you guys are doing? Sam, you can go. Um, well, uh, obviously just, just Google me, Sam Oliver, Bangor university UK. There's a, there's a bio and, and feel free to, to reach out. Um, the email address is there and, um, yeah, I'd like to particularly interested actually to hear like questions and things and from coaches, runners and athletes. Cause, um, I think often that that's, those are the sorts of things that really stimulate, um, the minds of people like me that spend more of my time writing and doing science, but actually you guys come up with some really good questions. And, um, something you said earlier on there, Jason, that there's this, some of this research is starting to sort of support some of the thoughts we had. And, and often I think that science was sort of, we're always trying playing catch up, I think, with some, some coaching uh, uh, ideas and things. And eventually we help to sort of support some of those things. So we keep, we need the questions from you guys um, to keep us, keep us in jobs. I've, so, al yeah. I've always presented it as coaching. We need to make reasonable extensions of the research because 
you know, we're working with humans in an infinitely complex environment and science is trying to do the opposite, right? You're trying to take that infinitely complex environment and narrow it down to a few or several types of parameters. And because of that conflict, once again, we're trying to logically extend what you guys are doing in the field. Great. We talked about this before in this podcast, right? You're studying non, non-competitive, non-elite types of athletes. So we'll look at this and create a logical extension of what does this mean for an elite athlete if that's the context that you're that you're working with. So absolutely, I'm 100% on, on board on this. And I can guarantee you, we're going to have one of our coaching roundtables probably in a few weeks on heat acclimation. And we'll, we're going to bring a study like this up as well as all the other, you know, supporting studies that have been out there and discuss what it means for athletes. So 100%. Yeah, definitely. Uh, feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from any, uh, any anyone interested in heat acclimation, want to know more. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RollyMacPhD uh, or contact me via uh, I'm at St Mary's University in Twickenham so yeah feel free to reach out and um, be great to hear from anyone links to both of those will be in the show notes appreciate you guys for uh, coming on the podcast today thanks very much Jason cheers Jason thank you all right folks there you have it there you go much thanks to sam and to robbie for coming on the podcast today and also thank you for the research that you guys do i do continue to maintain the opinion that heat acclimation is one of the most effective interventions that we can use as coaches and endurance athletes and it also just happens to be one of the better researched ones and one of the ones that when you do right it can interfere very little or at all with the actual training process. And one of the things that I hope the athletes and coaches appreciate about this podcast is the intervention doesn't have to be very complex. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. It doesn't have to take a long duration of days to actually achieve an effect. Thank you to all the listeners. I hope you appreciated this content. If you do, please share this share this podcast and the rest of my content, to be honest with you, but share this podcast in particular with the people that are training for Western States or Badwater or any other hot weather event. I'm sure they would appreciate it. You can also share the podcasts that are linked up in the show notes that all have a very similar theme about how to prepare for races in the heat. As always, this podcast is presented to you intentionally and deliberately without any sponsorships. That means nobody is paying for this podcast. I pull money out of my pocket each and every single month to pay for the post-production, to pay for all the things that go into this podcast. And I don't advertise on it. And I do that for you, the listeners, so that you have the utmost confidence that the information contained within this podcast is unadulterated by the almighty dollar. You can help that out by sharing this podcast with your friends and your training partners. Thank you to all the listeners out there. And that is it for today. As always, we will see you out on the trails. Mm -hmm.